right. We are going to do things a little different this morning. It's very odd, isn't it? <laughs> Everybody is like, what is happening? I don't know how to do any of this. Hey, guys, what's awesome is that God has not changed one bit. It's a little different the way we're doing church. It's a little different the way that we're uh, looking at each other and not looking at each other and the faces that we're seeing and the faces that we're not seeing. But what is not different is that our God is worthy of all praise. Amen? Amen. So we are going to roll with the punches. I'm so sorry that uh, for those of you who do not like change, oh boy, have I hit one right at you. <laughs> um, but yeah, things are going to be a little different this morning, and it's really awesome the way that this, the service is going to go. Um, we're going to have a little bit of the sermon now. We're going to have some testimony time, a little bit more sermon, a little bit more singing. And um, the cool part is, too, is that you get to either look at each other while you sing, or you can close your eyes and concentrate on the Lord. Either one, the cool part is, is if you look at somebody and you're like, gosh, they look grumpy. You know what? Nine times out of ten, they're probably mirroring what they're seeing. <laughs> so if you see somebody that you're looking at and you're like, man, they're grumpy, put a smile on your face because nine times out of ten, if someone smiles at you, it is very hard to not smile back, right? They're mirroring you. So just remember that. And you guys get to experience what I experience every single Sunday. I look up here and I see all of you, and that's the face that I get too. So you guys will feel a little, just pray for me, okay? <laughs> okay. So here we are. We are starting um, our sermon this morning, and um, we have Psalm 23 that we're doing. So Justin, you're starting, right? Sure. Okay. What's your, what's your portion? So Psalm 23, the first three verses, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Okay, so Justin, tell me, what does it um, mean to, whenever it says, I lack nothing? What does that actually mean? Yeah, so that's one of the things that I, I love this in the King James, just because I think everybody grew up, everyone knows this verse. Even if you've never read the King James Bible, this and like John 3.16 are the two verses. Everyone knows this in the King James. But what I don't like, it says, I shall not want. And that word has changed dramatically since like the 17, 1800s. What it means is that like, not that I don't have wants, but that I lack nothing that I need. There's nothing that I need that the Lord is withholding from me, that I'm lacking. So it kind of got me thinking about it because the Lord has changed my views over the years of the things that I need versus the things that I want. There were, there were periods in my time where I was out of work and I was living on my own and I had enough money to eat two meals a day and put gas in my truck, right? And, and then it kind of it changed my view of like, well, you said that I'll want for nothing. It's like, yeah, I don't want, but you don't need three meals a day. You can live on two. And there are times in my life where I haven't had a job, right? Like there was no work going on in construction, and I, I got jobs in like Home Depot. I got jobs in grocery stores, and I did whatever I could to try to get enough money. There were times for a while where I received some government assistance. And I remember thinking like, God, you said that I will lack nothing. And he's like, you have food. You still have a place to live. You're not lacking anything you need. You're lacking things that you want. And there are times when, like, when, when I thought I had finally made it and I was making big boy money with a big boy job and 
You know, you try to get a house, you get a car, and then you realize the Lord changes your life and your circumstances, and you have to sell your house, go back to renting the brand new car you got, you can't afford payments on anymore, so it's time for the car to go, and you go back to buying used cars that are, <laughs> I like the term gently loved, <laughs> right? It's like, God, what are you doing to me? Like, I did this right, like, you said you would provide, and he's like, I am providing, but what I'm going to change is you're not going to lack the things that you need. You don't need that. Your pride needs that. And the Lord changed, and he's added a lot of humility to my life when I've realized, man, there's nothing that I need that he doesn't provide. So when I think about things like, man, sometimes I've had to, I had to move in with my in-laws as a family, with a young family, because I could not at the time, Afford, we couldn't afford to provide for ourselves because of the way the job market changed. Right, We got married right as the economy crashed. Nobody built anything for like a year. Like, Lord, what are you doing? He's like, you lack nothing that you need. You did not need that. So when I think about that, when the Lord takes things from my life, like, God, what are you, why are you taking this away from me? It's because it's something that I didn't need. When the Lord's removed relationships from my life, it's because it's something that I did not need anymore. It was not good for me. When they start asking questions, why, don't, why isn't my health better? Why are family members passing on? It's like, man, you lack nothing that you need. I will be there for the things that you need. And sometimes the things that you need are hard things because the Lord is more worried about your character than he is about whether or not you've got the right house, the right cars, and the right neighborhoods, the right jobs. You lack nothing that you need. So Eric, you have this next part. What is that, what is that portion of scripture that you have? All right. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I'm not going to sit down. This is weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it isn't it <laughs> so there's a question that, that uh, you had and it's what does it mean to walk through that darkest valley so um, it's obviously this is a really well known song um, most of us have heard it at least once or twice at a funeral but the thing that you need to recognize in this psalm is that it's in the present tense. So dead people are done walking through dark valleys. So this is written for people that are alive and walking through valleys. Um, now, it's, you probably wonder why I got this verse. Well, I have probably been one of the only pastors to have died several times. And so I have some experience walking in dark valleys. Um, and Donna has a ton of experience watching me walk through dark valleys. Um, and so I, I kind of have a, it's an interesting perspective on verse 4 because you, verses 1 to 3 are so good. You know, you're thinking, ah, pasture, water, you know, this is really good. And then you get into these dark valleys. And it's interesting because most of us think of it, we, like I said, we go King James on it, right? You know, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? But that's actually not a very good translation uh, from the Hebrew. Um, it actually translates better in the NIV where it says, though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
And so this psalm is built around the picture um, of David the shepherd, right? And so the shepherd has a responsibility to take care of the sheep. Um, and in case you haven't figured out, we are the sheep. Um, and so David's very familiar, and he's out there protecting the sheep, guiding them. You know, we read in the, in the, in the Bible about how he, you know, took care of, you know, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. And uh, so David was really familiar with this whole process. Um, now, as a flock has to move from place to place, they have to go through dark valleys. They have to go down ravines and, you know, all sorts of places. And it's the shepherd's job to make sure they get there safely, right? Because, I mean, obviously, we don't want some animal to sneak out of a crack and eat one of the sheep, which is lamb's good. And, um, you know, we don't want them to fall off a cliff. Or, so it's the shepherd's job to guide them through these dark places to get to the next green pasture, right? Uh, and so that's really kind of where um, I go. And, and it's interesting, the first time I thought I was going to die, um, I was in Paris visiting my, uh, my mom's French, and so we're visiting family. Um, I was 13, um, and my cousin and I were walking along the dock on the River Seine, and I spied a balloon underneath the dock. And of course, being stupid, I decided I'll slip between the barge and the dock to get the balloon. So the first part went really well. The second part, not so much. As my way back out between the barge and the dock, some boat went along the water and pushed the barge into me. Have you ever seen one of those little squishy toys, you know, you squeeze them or eyeballs pop out? That's what I felt like, you know? I thought this is gonna be really bad, you know? So I screamed and fortunately the, guy, the guys on the barge heard me and they put timbers in there and they pried it off. And, um, and so I was like, you know, and of course it was all good until I got back to where we lived and <laughs> my mom saw me covered with grease and yeah, it was ugly then. But, you know, the thing is that's so quick, it's not a dark valley. When something like that happens so quickly, you don't really think of it that way. It's so fast. But what are the dark valleys? What are the dark valleys that we go through that we're talking about God carrying us for? Well, you know there's physical dark valleys, right? We go through health issues. And as you all know, I've been through plenty. In fact, I just took my brace off because I figured there's no way I was going to be able to hold a microphone with my brace. Um, but, you know, I look at things like, for instance, in 2004, I had open heart surgery. And the surgeon met with Donna and I and said, can we move the date of your surgery from the 23rd to the 28th of December? Because I'm giving you about a one in five chance of not making this, and we don't want to ruin Christmas. Thank you. <laughs> so as you can imagine, we had kind of a dark Christmas, right? Where like people are going, it's been nice knowing you, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, because it's like, and that's when you're dark, right? That's when you're like going, oh my gosh, you know, I need help on this. I, I need to be carried through this. Um, another time, I had simple surgery on my elbow. Seems like a simple deal, but they gave me my blood thinners too early. Um, and so I started bleeding and they couldn't stop the bleeding. And um, it took them a while to figure out what was going on. And meanwhile, for about an hour and a half, I was bleeding out um, and exaggeration sanguination is the name of it. But basically, it's a process of just losing all your blood. And it's a really weird experience. You literally feel like your life is draining out of you. 
Um, and uh, fortunately, Donna again came to the rescue and told the people in the ER, no, you have to do something now. Um, he is on blood thinners. If you don't do something, he's gonna just bleed out. And for me, it was interesting because I, could, I was helpless. Often in the times when we walk through these dark valleys, we feel helpless, we feel alone. Because I knew there was absolutely nothing I could do. They either fixed the leak or I died. So fortunately, they got it figured out. One of the nurses was a medic, so he was used to putting IVs in the people that had no blood pressure and was able to get me back up and running again. And after a couple of transfusions, I was, you know, good as new. But those are the dark valleys that we walk through. And we walk through spiritual and emotional dark valleys. As I've shared before, I've struggled with depression. Those of you that have walked in depression know that is a very dark valley. It's a real tough time. Fortunately, the doctors figured out the right medicine, and as long as I remember to take it, that's a dark valley I don't have to walk down. Right? And that's, that's the cool part. I mean, we have these dark valleys we have to walk through, but we're not going to walk through these things alone. All right. Make sure I don't miss anything I wanted to say here. <laughs> All right. So I think the last thing that I wanted to cover is there's probably the toughest is the spiritual dark valleys. Those times that you think you, God's not there. You're not hearing from him. You're begging him for an answer and you hear nothing. And those are some of the most difficult times of your life. You know, because it's the one thing we count on is hearing that voice and knowing that he's there and he'll talk to us. So we're going to talk about the upside here on the second half of this, but <laughs> I don't want to leave you all too down. But, <laughs> but yeah, we walk through dark valleys. And then Weezy, what was your um, section of scripture? Oh, Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, Weezy, what enemies? Well, what enemies? Not the people who have hurt my feelings and betrayed me and abandoned me. Not them. They're just sinner schmucks like me. We're all in the same boat. I'm talking when I sit at this table and I see my enemies gathered around it watching me, it's much, much, much worse. These are the enemies that lie to me about myself, that tell me I'm alone, I'm worthless, I'm never going to be loved, I'm not important. These are the enemies that lie to me about you that tell me that you're not important, I could scrape you off, that tell me that you don't care, you don't want to care, you're never going to choose me for your team. These are the enemies that tell me lies about the world, that the world is meaningless and without purpose or sense, and that random is the rule of the universe. These are the enemies that tell me lies about God that he doesn't hear any prayers, that he's blind to my suffering, that he's bored and tired with my stuff. I'm talking about my enemies, the devil and his enemy, minions. That's who. 
So then why on earth would the Lord call us to eat at this table in front of our enemies? Well, this is kind of a fun thing. Back in, in olden days when a conquering army returned home after beating the whackers out of their enemies, they would bring their enemies with them. And when they went on their victory march down the main street of town, the enemies had to walk in that march at the tail end of the parade and see this happy, healthy city rejoicing at their defeat. And so when God calls me to sit at a table in the presence of my enemies, he's rubbing their noses in the fact that I no longer have to fear fear, that I no longer suffer loss that there is nothing that they can do to me. They can hurt me all they want, but they cannot harm me. They have to sit there and watch me relax in the goodness of God. They have to watch me rejoice in being absolutely free from their hatred and their malice. God is rubbing their noses in it. Then cool. talk to me a little bit more about the table. I know, I think there's probably more to that too. Yeah, this is, this is a cool table. This, this is the Lord's table that he has prepared since before time. And he has brought me to it and seated me at it. And he's serving me his body and his blood. That's the feast. He's feasting me on his goodness. And here's how he does it. Way back in the day, Jesus came as a person, just another schmuck like the rest of us, and he let God take over his life. And then the devil was allowed to do his worst. And Jesus took all the evil that the devil could dish out into his body and allowed it to die. Sucked all of the stuff into himself and let it die. And then he rose from the dead and smashed it. It's done. And you know the Bible talks about the life is in the blood. So when I get to feast on Jesus' body and blood, he's feeding me on the defeat of the enemy. And his victory, his everlasting life flows through me. That's a table that he prepared before the beginning of time just so he could serve me at that table. That's what. Man, that's amazing. All right, give these guys a round of applause. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's muted, so that doesn't do anything. <laughs> Thank you. I like reading old guys, I like, uh, as a jo it's a joke, but I like reading old dead guys because their theological depth is amazing. And I do not remember, I think it was Matthew Henry that I was reading, and he said, he was talking about the Lord restoring his soul, and he's like, man, that's the, the conviction of my sin and the Lord restoring my soul back to the right place that it should be. And I, I, it got me thinking about David, and because, you know, for me, when I think of restoring my soul, most of the time I think about hard things that I've gone through in life where I've been, I've been down or, like, things did not go the way that I, I, I hoped, and the Lord has used some amazing people and church, and worship, and testimony, and if you guys are not in, this is not just a plug for um, summit groups, but if you're not in a very close-knit group with other believers, you really need to be, because the Lord has used other believers, other men. I love, I love men's groups, because walking with another man 
who can say, who can be there and be a source of encouragement when you need it, is amazing. I love that when the Bible says, God said, I will not give you more than you can handle. He's not speaking to you personally. He's speaking to you personally with the rest of the church. He is saying, I will not give you more than you can handle. And I have found there is things that I cannot handle, but the Lord's brought great people in my life who have helped me handle it. And it's not that I'm strong enough and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and soldiered on. The Lord's given me people who were there to pick me up when I needed it. So normally when I think of the Lord restoring my soul, I think about times where I have been through things where I was disinvited from ministries and there was no sin involved. It was just the Lord was moving me on and it leaves you in a really dark place like, Lord, I did everything that I was supposed to and I did it right and I was praying and reading my Bible and I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't mess with your glory. I didn't mess with the girls and I didn't mess with your gold. Like I'd leave to the three G's alone. What's, what's the deal? I left the gold, the glory, and the girls all alone. What's the problem? Why am I not here? And, and um, I realized the Lord was telling me, man, it's because your time is done here. I'm moving you somewhere else. And it was a really dark place when you realize, like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And the Lord's shutting that door. And it left me wondering why. And the Lord restored my soul. The Lord brought that happiness back into my life. The Lord was there for me. And he realized, like, man, after a while, I was placing this in a place that it should not be. This had become an idol in my life. And the Lord was more worried about my soul than he was about the work that I wanted to do for him. It become more of an idol. So when I started thinking about the Lord restoring my soul and the conviction of sin, the Lord is more worried about who you are in your soul than he is about anything else. So when I was thinking like restoring my soul, and I was thinking about David, and we all, everyone likes to highlight David's sin. I mean, it, it's a real common thing about the things that he had done wrong. But I love that David sent a prophet to him to convict him of his sin. He said, David, this is what you did, and the Lord knows it. And he used that to drive David back to repentance, where David, David cried out to God, he fasted, and he prayed, and the Lord restored that relationship in his life. So when I think of man, like, the Lord's restoring my soul, the Lord restores my soul, he removes those things from my life so that I will be in a right relationship with him. And sometimes it's really hard when the Lord removes things from your life, but if you realize, man, they were getting in the way between me and my Lord, between me and the Lord, and that was becoming an idol, and I didn't even realize that I was worshiping something in place of God. And then the conviction of that and the removing of that to make sure that I'm in a right place and a right relationship with Him is, man, that's that's kind of what I start. I was thinking about when the Lord restores my soul; He restores that relationship with Him that back to the place that it should be. And that's his primary importance. How does your daughter end up being something that comforts you? All right. Glad to see I'm not the only one suffering from allergies today. (laughs) (laughs) So it's important when we talk about the rod and the staff that we understand what the rod and the staff were. Right, very few of us have been shepherds, so we're probably not familiar with the tools of shepherding. So we have a picture of a rod and a staff. There we go. 
So the rod is a short club-like device that is used to protect the sheep. And the staff is that long pole, and it's got a hook on the end. So the goal is to guide the sheep, but in case they get lost or get down someplace, they can reach down and pull them up by using that little hook. Uh, so when I look at that and I realize what the rod and staff is designed to do, realize that one of those is an offensive weapon and the other is there to guide you and is able to rescue you. And that is what we're told that thy rod and thy staff bring us comfort. So the, um, we know that Jesus is our shepherd and he cares about us the sheep. Um, and we'll find out through scripture that there's many, many times that people have been walking through dark valleys that they rely upon God to bring them right through and to bring them comfort. You know, I think one of the di most difficult parts of being in a dark valley is sensing comfort in that. Um, and again, like I said before, I've been through a lot of medical things, but I can tell you that I have peace going into it. And the part of it is, is I've got a lot of practice. Um, and, and, and that's where that comfort comes from. If you've been through it enough, you know he's got you. You know, I tell young people, the sooner you put your faith in God, the easier your life is going to be. Because as soon as you know he's got this, then a lot of your concerns are going to go away. And then as he's got this, over and over again, you build this faith muscle that is able to get you through anything he puts you through. So I've looked at a couple places in scripture that really got my attention when it looks at dark places. If you call Abraham in Genesis 15, right? He's in his 90s, has no kid, but God promises him that he'll become a great nation. And in the laws of Hebrew at the time, if you don't have a child, then the first child born in your house becomes an heir, which means one of his servant's kids we're going to become the heir of everything that Abraham had. And Abraham is, or Abram, he wasn't Abraham yet. He was Abram. And he's really struggling with that. And we read in um, verse 12 of Psalm 15, And the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. A thick and dreadful darkness. You just can imagine the weight of him trying to balance his mind how God is going to fulfill this process. And so, of course, he has a dream, and God explains to him what's going to happen, and that the four generations are going to be you know, sent into Egypt and slavery, and, and then they're going to come back and take over uh, the land that he was promised to have. And we read in verse 15, You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full. So you can sense this, this sense of despair that Abraham is, goes to bed with and he hears that comfort from God. I got this. I've got it. And of course, we all know what happens, right? Um, Sarah gets pregnant and, <laughs> you know, Abram is 150 and has to deal with teenagers. It's like, <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> The, uh, but, you know, and we see this a lot of places in, in, in Scripture. There's Psalm 69, verses 15 and 16 says, You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. 
All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, I found none. So David goes on through this psalm and explains how heavy and struggling he is. And we all know David went through a lot of tough times and people trying to take over his kingdom and all that sort of stuff. And yet he tells us that, but God's there. He's got this. He comforts me. He takes care of me. He's watching over me. The, um, and so when I look at these dark times, I, I know that God loves us. I know that he's there for us. Um, I know that he wants what's best for us, um, and we just have to trust him, put faith in him, and we will find comfort. I'm going to finish with a thought that um, you know, I thought through when I think about dark valleys and some of the toughest times I've walked through. There's a There's a, um, it's not really a poem, but it's called Footsteps in the Sand. And a guy's looking back at his life. And he calls out to God, God, it's the most difficult times of my life. There's only one set of footsteps. Where were you? And God said, oh, my dear son, those footsteps are mine. I was carrying you. Amen. So then, Weezy, what does it mean that um, our cup runs over? Oh, <laughs> my mom used to say, enough is as good as a feast. But, you know, enough is never enough with God. He's just never satisfied with enough. Always, my cup runs over. As soon as I get connected to God's love, it just starts gushing and gushing and gushing and gushing. And after about 30 seconds, my cup is full and flowing over. And there's a reason for that. You know, still water gets stagnant. But running water is called living water. And it flows. And it goes from place to place to place to place. My cup is flowing over so that I have the love of God to pour into the people around me. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. I mean, think about it. Every man here who knows Jesus has a cup full of God's love pouring over, and now Terence is surrounded with brothers who can't wait to pour into him and be his loyal family. It's a miracle from God. And the same is true of every single person here who has Jesus. My cup runs over. But what about the oil? Oh, oil. What is that for? <laughs> you know, God doesn't just provide what we need to live. He also provides for our delight and our sustenance and our joy. I mean, he made us, he designed us so that we play. Isn't that amazing that we would have space in our lives to just play just for no reason but because God thinks it's a good idea? But oil is even better than that. Oil also anoints me and consecrates me for a life of service and ministry. And that's true of every single person who knows Jesus. We are anointed by God for ministry. We've been consecrated. 
It's incredible. So the goodness of God is almost too good of a, mm. for us to think about. But what can we possibly say in response to that? Wow. You know, have you ever sat down and tried to think about how good God is, and it's sort of almost like trying to look at the sun? You know, and you just can hardly bear to think about it for more than 10 seconds, how good he is, because we're just, our brains are not equipped to deal with that much joy. You know, back in, in the olden days, uh, you could, if you were having hard times, you could sell yourself into servitude. You could become a servant in the house of a wealthy person and say, you know, I'm going to serve you for six years, and then you're going to set me free again, and that's how I'm going to pay off my debt. And that was a very common practice. And what you were supposed to do if you were the wealthy householder was you accept the six years of service from the person who owes you money. And then when they're done serving you on the seventh year, you set them up with some stuff to take with them and you turn them loose. But if you're the servant and you have spent your six years serving this family and you realize that, wow, that's a good family they're kind, they're generous, they're brave, they're true. They've never lied to you or abused you. They've always given you what they have. And you realize, I love these people. I love my master here. I want to stay with them. I don't want to be out roaming around the world. I don't care what they give me for my bag to stuff to carry with me. I want to stay here. You can go to the master and say, I, I don't want to leave you. I want to stay here forever. And the master would take you to the front door and take an ice pick, and you stand by the front doorpost, and he drives the ice pick through your ear into the doorpost. And a little of your blood gets on that doorpost. Remember blood on the doorpost? Yeah. And that's a signal to the household and to you. You've got this permanent hole in your ear, and your blood is permanently on the doorpost that you are now a member of that household. You're no longer a bondservant. You are permanently there. And the family treats you as part of the family now. And so that, to me, that means I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I am determined to stay. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life because now everywhere I go, not only is God's goodness and mercy going with me, but I'm leaving it in my tracks behind me. Everywhere I go, I should be leaving the trail of goodness and mercy because I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Give him another round of applause for doing this.